Amen. Hey, thank you for making the effort to find a parking place and get in here this morning. Um, for those of you, if you're visiting with us, if you're wondering, is this what it's like every week? No. Uh, there's a special um, statewide baseball tournament that they're holding for this weekend only. It started on Thursday. Uh, and so uh, we're going to actually end a little bit soon. We're going to pass out bullhorns and we're going to storm the field. Uh, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Uh, uh, no, we won't do that. But um, anyway, so that's, that's uh, th- this unique weekend only. You got a chance to think, man, the church has really grown. No. <laughs> Youth sports, actually, ladies and gentlemen, which Tim prayed for. I, it should have been imprecatory at some level. I would think. No. I'm All right, so this morning, <laughs> we're in Malachi chapter 3, verses 13 through 18. So we'll finish chapter 3 this morning. We have two more weeks after this week in the book of Malachi, uh, and then we'll have a standalone sermon. Um, probably will be from Acts chapter 2 to talk just a little bit about uh, infant baptism uh, since we, we have a, a, a number of them or a number of baptisms actually this month, uh, both infant and professing. And so uh, it'd be helpful to us just to, to hear from Acts chapter 2 on that. And, uh, and then we'll start in the book of First and Second Peter. So you want to be looking for the devotional. That will carry us all the way up until Advent, uh, which will be in the Old Testament this year in Advent. So just to give you a heads up of what's coming. I want to remind us of a few things about Malachi that's critical for us to remember as we hear the words we're about to hear. Uh, and so I, I just want to see if you are with us or not. So um, what is the, the foundational indicative on which all of the things that Malachi is saying we need to do? What is it? Heather Leonard. God's love. Yeah, you got it right. Uh, yes, God's love for us. And that's critical to remember because so much... Uh, uh, that, that we hear in terms of obedience, we hear, it, we hear it through a different kind, we hear a different tone. What we hear is God's displeasure so often when we hear it. And when we're not doing well, we, we sense that God is not pleased with us. And therefore, what we do is instead of running to the throne of grace, we run from him. We run from the means of grace because here's what we say. Let's just be honest. Can we? This is a morning on which we need to really be honest. And some of you are going to think, he's talking about me. No, I'm not, actually, uh, because your struggle is not unique. Don't be so arrogant as to think you're a unicorn uh, among a bunch of uh, uh, just old show horses. No, everybody, everybody in this room has struggled at some point in time to, with this question. Is serving God worth it? Would, would it be better if, 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 I, if, I just, if I just went off on my own and did my own thing? Would it be better if, if I gave up the wife of my youth? Remember this, this is from Malachi. Gave up the wife of my youth for someone far more exciting and lie about it and, and do all those kind of things? Wouldn't it be better if, if, I, if, if I gained money by my own hand, if I made up my own tax code for me personally? right? Uh, all these things are things that we do to try to gain things by our own hand. And we think that it's somehow long-term better than serving the Lord because serving the Lord can just be so mundane, am I right? We want more of God when God has said, I have given you all you ever need. As if Jesus saving us and, 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 and sealing us for eternity was not near enough. Now, I understand sometimes what we're really saying is, I want to experience more of that. And that's, hey, that's true. That's great. Um, and we, we should want to. But so often, it's just the everydayness. It's, it's Ecclesiastes, but with the ending lived out, right? That you fear the Lord your God. If you notice in Ecclesiastes... What he doesn't say, any of you have read Ecclesiastes, it is the sun rises and falls and you just do all this stuff and you amass all this wealth and some punk kid of yours is going to blow it the first chance he gets and you won't even hardly be remembered or some government's going to come take it and do whatever they want with it. And, and so what's the point of all of this? And if you remember Koalef, who's the preacher, which some believe to be Solomon, that's probably pretty close, it even says Solomon's name in there somewhere. And so... He says, no, actually, the end of all things is to fear the Lord your God. Now, if you read it, notice what it doesn't say. And your life is going to be amazing. No, you're still going to work. 
You're going to still struggle to see that it has any meaning. You're still going to raise kids who don't get it. You're still going to be somebody who doesn't get it. You're still going to struggle with the sun rising and falling and the evil prospering. It's just life. But it is actually life more abundant in Christ because that rising of the sun and that work that you do is no longer meaningless. It actually takes on eternal implications if you would but pay attention and be intentional about wanting those things to be eternal. And one of the questions that we have this morning is what is the true purpose of our righteousness and obedience? Is it, and this is where you can participate, is the purpose of our righteousness and obedience to make God love us? Do you believe that? Because I think sometimes we live as if we don't believe that. We can say it. We've studied it in Reformed theology. We, we, we've got it voice down pat. But what about life? Do you live in light of knowing that you cannot make God love you at all first or more after based on your obedience? So if that's true, then why does it matter if people know that you are struggling If, if you being perfect is not the point of your righteousness and obedience, because, by the way, if you're in Christ, you've already been perfected, and it's, you're, you're waiting to see it in full when he returns. And, by the way, you spend your life growing to appreciate how great a truth that is. That's what you get more of, is an understanding of who you are and how much he loves you. So, so if that's the case then why are you so worried about, and many of you are, and myself included, why are you so worried about us knowing that you're not perfect? And aren't we family? How many of you uh, would admit this morning, impressively, by the way, that you're, right now as you sit here, I, I'm perfect. Clay Oldham? Joe Weathers? You? You look good this morning. It's good to see you. <laughs> You're close. I'm going to put you at 95. Zach Bohannon, you perfect this morning? No. Cody, my man, you perfect? No. Where's Randolph been at? He, he's 97. I'm just going to tell you all. No, he wouldn't say that, and he's mad, he's probably mad at me for saying that. But my point is, if, if we know none of us are perfect, then what are we hiding from exactly? Why are we so afraid for people to know exactly how imperfect we are? When healing is in putting things into the light. Now, did I just say you got to put your business in all the streets? No. No, I didn't. But you need to put your business enough in the street where it can heal. In the light. In the places where you know people love you and will care for you. Right? Instead of going around saying, I know what you're going to say. Jordan, do they know what I'm going to say? Tell the truth. No. No, because I'm a loose can. I'm a wild card. I, I might say all kinds of stuff, right? You don't know. It could be funny. I might just tell jokes. We could watch cat videos. You could tell me the worst thing you've ever done. I'm like, let's watch some cat videos real quick. Let's loosen up, everybody. Uh, you just don't know. So what I'm telling you is your, your sins should not continue to rob you and drain you of what matters most, which is knowing that you are loved. That's why God starts there with, in Malachi. He's got a group of people who, uh, it, they're affluent. They're doing well. The kingdom has returned. Everything's going for them, and they are bored with it. Like I admitted to you guys last week, the greatest uh, concern for me is not burnout. It is boredom. It's boredom. Because I get creative and it ain't good. Uh, and so, as you do, by the way. And it's good for me to make sure I admit that to some people. And make sure I keep, even, even the pastor's business got to be in the street a little bit. It may not be the, in your street. And you may be upset because you don't know. All you got to do is come ask, I'll tell you. But, but the thing is, we need to be family. And we need to actually use the means of grace as family, to not be afraid of hearing a hard word from one another. Because we know you don't cease to be family because you messed up. You cease to be family when you cut yourself off. 
That's on you. Um, and, and, and you got to remember Satan's key technique. He's got two that, he's, that he just wears out in our culture. One technique is to keep you so busy and so anxious that you don't have time to actually use your gifts, live the abundant life. He just keeps you overwhelmed. Got that one. And this one is probably a subset of that one. They probably go together. He then cuts you off, right? Remember, uh, and we'll hear this when we get into the book of First Peter, he is a roaring lion waiting for you to step outside the hedge. That's all he needs is to, if he can get you cut off. And I'm telling you, I know this. This is me as much as it is you. We are masters of cutting ourselves off at the worst possible moment. Instead of coming to each other in, when we're beginning to struggle, right? We just think, I can handle this. I don't need them to see my weakness. As if your weakness ain't going to come flying out of your cracked vessel at some point. So why don't we love each other better than that? Why don't you love you better than that? And get the help you need to come boldly before the throne of grace to receive what you need in a time of trouble. Why do you think that language is there? Both mercy, which is forgiveness, and grace. It is not ungracious on my part to call you out for your sin. That is not ungracious. In fact, it's the most gracious thing I could do because it's going to cost me. Big time. Because how many of you, show of hands real quick, you're like, I hope Cameron finds out about one of my darkest sins and just calls me out this morning. Caitlin Riley, you a lie. You just lied, and I called you out for it. So there, see, there you go. There it is. Right? And so, so why do we call things out? Am I trying to shrink the church? Am I just trying to cull the branches? Is, what's the point in that? Because you, let me just tell you, you don't take it well. You guys are awesome. I love you. But you, none of you have taken it real well um, when you get called out. And guess what? what? Susan, as the one who primarily gets to call me out, how do I take it? It's, you know, kasi kasi. It can go either way. Uh, I usually kick and scream, but what ends up happening? I'll come around. But I, I give it a good fight for a second now. I'm like the bucking bronco. You want to try to put on the harness? Let's see. But, but she's willing to do that, and I love her for that. One of the few people that's willing to do that for me. And we need to be able to do that for each other. That's real family, and that's where we can really get somewhere. All this play pretend, it ain't doing nothing for us. It's killing us. It's rotting us from the inside if we're not careful. And God's speaking to that. Why? Because he loves us. Don't forget this. And he's talking to skeptics. And here's the thing you've got to remember. You've got to remember this. I'm not reading the newspaper that Malachi read. Malachi is coming to them faithfully to warn them. A warning is what? That's grace. That's mercy. That's saying, get this right before it destroys you and your family. Which, by the way, has an impact on the church, too. There's a broader family involved. So the words that we're going to hear from Malachi this morning are gracious warning. Please hear them in that tone. Please recognize that whatever it is that you've done or, or, or you don't have, again, I, you don't need me to think you've got it together. You don't. You don't need any, anybody in this church to think that you're perfect or that you're better than you are. I would say to you who sit in darkness, come out. Stand in the light and deal with it so that you can move forward in grace and mercy and peace. It's the gospel. So, having said all that, here's the key truth. The true purpose of our righteousness is not personal gain. It's just not. You've got to get that. Nobody cares. And that's a good thing. All your righteousness is going to do for other people is make you a target, right? How many of you have that friend who, man, they're just, they're, they're almost angelic. They're so good at their devotions. They, they're the first one to pray. They just make you sick. They're so righteous, right? So I'm just here to tell you, all your righteousness is going to do is make it lonely at the top. If that's your goal, 
If what you want is for other people to, to invite you to parties, because they know you're going to be like, hey, let's just take a moment to pray before we get started, give thanks to the Lord. I'm not making fun of this, by the way. I'm, I'm saying this is, in your, this is in all of our hearts if we're not careful. I love that people will do that. I love that we have people who care about God's word. I love that we have people who will speak truth quickly. But let's be honest, if we're honest, that's not the people we want to hang out with because we want to we, we want to keep it, we want to keep it closer to the vest. We don't, we know we don't measure up, so we don't want to feel bad about it, so we kind of relegate those people. Be careful that in your own heart you don't see righteousness as that which can gain you something because it can gain you nothing in this world. Nothing with the exception of evidencing God's glory to those who so desperately need it. People want to see that there's a reason. What, what good does it do to, to be a Christian if everything else just largely remains the same? What, why get up and do this? On, why fight the crowd to find a parking place on Sunday morning? Great question, right? No. Why fight the crowd on Sunday morning just to show up here if this doesn't mean really anything at all, why, why, why go through all that if it's just this plus everything else you could have anyway? See, it has to be, you were saved for something. You are God's people for a specific reason. And that is, this is why your righteousness matters, for the, declaring the glory of God for the life of the world. The whole reason our obedience matters is not to make God love us more, not to make other people think you're awesome because they just won't. It wears out over time. It doesn't work. Uh, they find a, a reason to hate you. But instead, what it's for is to draw others into the family of grace and mercy defined by the gospel of Jesus Christ that we would be able to be honest, that we would be able to get the help that we need when we're hurting, that we could hear uh, the things that we're struggling with and not back away from one another, but move toward one another. That is the, the beatific vision. That is a beautiful thing. That is what Jesus did. It's what we are called to do as the church. And it's not fair if you, if you wait for people to figure it out. Again, we've got to be willing to engage one another in spirit and truth and use the, the gifts that God's given us, one of which is the fellowship of the people. Listen to what Ian Duguid and Matthew Harmon say about this section of text. <coughs> These words of comfort and challenge address us as well. As we seek to cling to God through disappointment and difficulty, God's words will be particularly relevant during those times of life when it may seem that God has forgotten us or when we continue to suffer while those who do evil and mock God seem to thrive. Now, if you would give your attention to the reading of God's word, this is Malachi 3, 13 through 15. This is the skeptical declaration of the questionable benefits of righteousness. Your words have been hard against me, says the Lord, but you say, how have we spoken against you? You have said, it is vain to serve God. What's the profit of our keeping his charge, of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? And now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. That's interesting. We, we've already dealt with this a little bit already in Malachi, which shows you kind of the magnitude. Anytime something's repeated, it gives you a sense of, what was underneath and what was maybe one of their significant problems. One of the big problems that led to their malaise is they didn't see any profit in serving the Lord. Have any of you ever struggled with that? Those of you who are parents, if you've been a parent for any length of time, I, get, I feel fairly certain you've struggled with this. Did you say, Lord, I, I, I prayed, I tithed, I went to church every Sunday, and that child of mine... It's just prodigal as they can be, as if God himself, who's perfect, doesn't have any prodigal children. 
Why would you think you as a parent are going to be better than God as parent? So see, that's a crown of thorns for you to think that way. There's some of you who are, who are single and you don't want to be single. And you're thinking, God, I have, I have served on ministry teams. I have, I have prayed. I've even tithed a little bit every now and again. Cash, nobody knows about it. It's cool. I have, I have shown up to help with certain things every once in a while, super like off kilter, but don't worry about that either. I've done the best I can do. Why am I, what profit is it for me to be a Christian if I'm just going to be single? Let me sign up for this tender. Right? What, what, what profit is it for some of you who've been a Christian for a long time? Long time. And you're wondering, what's the benefit in this? It just seems like we repeat the same stuff over and over. Yeah, the Bible said we would. Nothing new under the sun. It's going gonna, it's gonna to rise and fall. Right? If you read history, we've had doofuses in charge of the world before. Now, they didn't have the nuclear power to blow up this and seven other planets. But God is sovereign. Amen? We've been through all this before. This is just east of Eden. We, we are still trying to take shortcuts. We've got the same issue. You do understand that Adam and Eve said this very thing in the garden. They hadn't even been there all that long. We don't know how long they were there. But they were there long enough to go, ah, just, I don't know, dominion, babies, working, to make things, you know, like God wants them. I just, if we just eat of this tree right here, we can jump, we can jump straight to it. We can skip all that other stuff. Now, you got to remember that the garden was not perfect, by the way. You do understand that, right? Because it wasn't finished. They were given the work to do to finish the garden temple, and there was a talking snake floating around somewhere. And you got to remember that Adam and Eve were not perfect either. That's a great mistake that we make in thinking they were born perfect. No, because they weren't yet complete. Just think about this for one second. How many different fruits are there in the world? Does anybody here know the answer to that question? Because I want you on my trivia team if we ever go play. Tom, you might know the answer to this. There's at least peaches. We know that. He wrote a book on it. You ought to read it. All right. So there's lots of different fruits in the world. And the fall didn't create more of them, by the way. So Adam and Eve had not yet tasted of the fullness of God's goodness. They hadn't even eaten through all the trees yet. They didn't yet know how good God really was. They hadn't had kids yet and needed to call on him for help. They had not yet gotten into it. So they were not, they, they were to become. Now, Jesus, when he was born, now this is going to be a tricky one, because some of y'all are going to split a hair here, but was he perfect? In his humanity, Stucker, the smartest person in this room, theologically says no. I agree with him. Not in his humanity. And how do we know that? Hebrews tells us. He grew through his suffering and obedience. And it even says that he grew up like a normal human. Why didn't he get crucified at age 10? Let's just get, why didn't we just get to it? He'd probably be a little more obedient at 10 than 30. Well, because he wasn't ready. And so for you, the same is true. There's some things you're not ready for. So this more that sometimes you're, you're, you're longing for, this thing that you think is missing, you have to trust that God who loves you in his sovereignty knows for some reason you're not ready. And you need to be faithful to the means of grace to keep doing what you know you need to be doing because you have no idea what you're failing to prepare for. Remember what I told you in the darkest night of my soul, which lasted about 10 years, it felt like. The thing I did was I continued to read the word. And the pay, at the time, I had no idea why. It didn't make sense. I probably, I don't know why I did it, other than God is sovereign. It's the only thing I knew to do. And it paid off in, in ways that I can't even begin to comprehend and it's ministered to my soul in ways that if I had not been investing in those days, I wouldn't have it right now. And that's what I'm trying to say to you. For many of you who have dropped the means of grace, while it may not help you today, right? You're honestly, you read it and you go, I don't feel anything. As if it, how, how, much, how much stuff do you do that every time you do it, it feels the same? We were talking about this last night with, the, with Amanda and Jordan. 
Have you ever had a bottle of wine or a steak or a meal that was a beer, a, a fruit roll-up, whatever it is that you guys are into, that was just, you had it and you're like, oh, this is amazing, right? Like you, and you tell everybody about it. And then everybody, t- they get it and you try it again and it's kind of subpar. You're like, ah, there must, must be some, some quality control problem at the plant or something. I don't know. This is ridiculous. And you try it again, and it's still not quite what it was in that first moment. Have you given up on eating, drinking, and being merry? Then why do you do it to God? Why is your assumption that every time you crack that book open, it's going to be live? Because you came half dead. Or you came who knows how. And so you end up eviscerating yourself for three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten years from now. You've got nothing in the bank. You're drawing on an account that's got nothing left. And so you say, what profit is it to serve God? What's the point? Don't feel anything. Don't sense anything. And notice what they got wrong. It says, you know, we have to go about as if we're mourning. By the way, is that biblical? Are the people of God to go about with sackcloth and ashes in mourning? Absolutely not. In fact, it won't take you but two or three psalms in, and you're going to see that that is patently not what we are called to do as people of God. In fact, the psalms are filled with the challenge to go about with joy. What kind of joy, though? The joy of knowing who you are as a child of God, in union with Christ, that that's firmly set. And sometimes that joy looks like you're gritting your teeth and you're hanging on just for dear life. As much joy as you got, it's not all going to be giggles and smiles. Even Jesus says, when you're fasting, don't look like it. Right? Don't look like it. Don't go around with your long face and all that stuff. So they had it twisted from the start. They thought, and that's why they weren't benefiting from it at all, because they thought that they were supposed to look like it was a miserable experience. It's funny that they reaped what they sowed, isn't it? Because they were sowing the wrong thing for the wrong reasons. So no, there was no joy in their worship. No, there was no benefit from what they were doing. And it's not that God is saying that their question is inconsequential. Pay attention. He's taking what they're saying seriously because he's condescended to answer them personally. He's talking to them through Malachi, but he's addressing his people directly. That means he recognizes it's not foolishness. And as he corrects them, he's not correcting them because he's mad at them, because he's displeased with them, because he doesn't want to see them continue down this road and be destroyed by it, either little by little or all at once. And so he is recognizing that this is not easy. Because I get it. I'm I'm a long-arc guy. I I tend to be really patient with sinners. I tend to let my justice tarry a bit so that the family can get bigger. I know that's hard on y'all because you live in a fallen world. I get it, but I'm going to resource you with as much as I can. I'm going to give you all that, that, that you'll need to make it and live the abundant life, which we have, a I suspect, we have an overly westernized, Americanized view of what that means. And so he's taking their questions seriously. He's addressing them. They even go back to saying the wicked prosper. Notice how this is a play on what we read last week. He says, listen, if you want, test me. See if I don't open up the the storehouses of heaven to pour down on you through your obedience. But notice why. So that other nations would look to you and see a land of delight. 
Your righteousness, your obedience is so that others would look upon our lives and say, that's different. That is something that I want. That's a confidence that is unshaken. That is something that can answer the questions of meaningless that I have. That is something that has tangibility to it and love and true friendship instead of all of this made-up narrative that we keep kind of espousing for ourselves. It just fascinates me um, that uh, I, I had a, a conversation with somebody one time. She, she was agnostic. So if you don't know what agnostic means, it means that they, there's some force out there somewhere. I just don't think it's God. So I asked, I said, hey, would you be okay with your dad uh, just kind of being out there somewhere in the world and never writing you, never speaking to you, never defining himself for you, uh, never approaching you? Would that, would you, is that a position you would want? Would you like to be an agnostic daughter? No. Okay. Well, here's what I have to say to you, that the God that you think is just floating around out there somewhere, he drew near in the personal work of Jesus Christ, and he wrote a giant love letter. Starts in Genesis 1-1, ends uh, at the end of Revelation 22, and, and he reveals himself over and over and over and over and over again. And he tells you where he is and where he's at work and what he loves and what, how you ought to join him. Did, doesn't that sound better than just this floating about thing? And why do we like the floating about God that is undefined? Because we get to define it. We get to say. And she actually ended up becoming a believer because she recognized uh, uh, in the power of the Holy Spirit that God had revealed himself. And that scripture is actually a giant love letter. Uh, and, and not him just, it's, so, it's, not, it's not a thousand pages of double column displeasure. And that's how we read it though. At least the first 60%, which is the Old Testament. That's not him expressing his displeasure, by the way. Why would he take so much time to scream out to a disobedient, exiled, going into exile, coming out of exile, but malaised people? That takes love to keep saying it over and over in as many ways as he possibly could. That takes love. It takes love for us to, to, to care enough about each other to, to come to each other and share what's really going on instead of trying to prop up fake stuff. It takes love for us to say hard words to one another. And God is expressing his love in this, not his displeasure. He's not pleased, by the way, with us being off course, but he's not pleased because it affects his ability to and our ability to enjoy the love that he has for us. So if you would hear what uh, Alan Ross says about this. <clears throat> he says, the people that the prophet addressed here were skeptics. They had their doubts about the validity of the faith, but because many of them were not committed to the Lord, they had, a false, they had false and selfish expectations. They were expecting an immediate payoff, rewards or benefits for becoming part of the congregation and living under the law. They thought that God owed them something for their presence. Remember, we talked about this. Hey, God, I showed up. <laughs> I mean, I, I took a minute to find a parking place, but I walked across East Egypt to get here. Isn't that enough? Can I take a little nap for a second? You know, Cameron's going to be going for a minute. I mean, yeah, we got a baptism. I'm not sure what time we're getting out of here. And I'm going to take that long walk back. I got to rest. And he says, their whole approach to the worship and service of God was, and hear this, mercenary. We need to examine our own hearts and ask, are we just showing up mercenaries? Are we just showing up because we think that, that somebody's going to notice? Right? Somebody's going to notice and that's going to mean something to somebody. Are we, are we showing up because we think it'll, it'll at least continue to kind of paint the picture that I'm, I'm holding it together better than you thought, right? Or, or, or are we showing up because we think that God's going to love us more, like us showing up half-spirited, not singing, not paying attention, not doing anything with any of these things. I'm not accusing you all of all that, but if it's true, 
okay, I love you. Handle it. As LeBron James said to Mark Schwartz, be better. So, so, how are you showing up? What's your heart? Why are you doing this? What's this really about for you? You just a mercenary? Because there's no real payoff in that. That's what he's saying. It's only going to lead you to despair. This is why so many people, skeptics, who continue down the skeptical path, wind up all the way out oftentimes. Because why? Why add this to anything? Sooner or later it proves that it's just without the spirit, without the actual focus of mission, without the focus upon not myself but other, the glory of God, it can't sustain so, have you ever questioned the benefits of serving God? Now, it's the Sabbath, Lord's Day Sabbath. Give that one till Tuesday. Put that in the bank. Come back to it, wrestle with it another day. Because I want you to hear the last part. But it is a question you do need to ask yourself. And if you have a question, uh, what are the benefits in serving God? How are you even trying to work through it? Are you actually doing any kind of work to work through it? Are you, are you engaging with people who can actually help you, who maybe have a degree in this kind of stuff, whose door is open, whose email is always there? Or the elders or the, or the deacons or, or whoever? Are you doing the work? Because so often that's the problem. We don't want to do no work. Because we don't think it'll matter. If you would turn back to the text, Malachi 3, 16 through 18. Listen to what it says. Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them. And a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make, when I make them my treasured possessions. And I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve him. So here, I want you to notice something. That the, the righteous get together and encourage one another. This, this is fellowship that is, that, that is upbuilding. Now, do you think that they only got together and were like, hey, what's your favorite verse from the week? No, they were wrestling with the same things the skeptics were wrestling with. You do understand that, right? They were living in the same country. They were under the same rule. They were suffering from the same malaise. The main difference is how they got together and talked and the fruitfulness of that talk. They recognized that they needed to be encouraged. They needed one another for the upbuilding in the Lord. And the Lord saw it. We've heard this in another verse when he says, where two or three are gathered in my name, I am there also. And so he says, I'm going to write a book of remembrance, which this is something that kings would have done, uh, something that would have resonated with them they, to, keep, to keep track of these things. And all he's telling them is, I've got you. Don't forget that. No matter how bad it looks, because guess what's coming? 400 years of exile and what some would say, there's no new prophet that comes, so there's an, a, a, a measure of intertestamental silence. Think about that for a second if you had to live through that. There was no more to gain until John comes. And so that would have been a really difficult time. And listen, the righteous suffer the same exile as the unrighteous. And they would have needed to be encouraged in that time that was coming. So he's telling them, keep doing what you're doing. Keep serving me. It does matter. Uh, we saw it in Daniel, right? Remember Daniel, what did he do to go into exile? Nothing. But he was part of the people of God and people of God went into exile. But he continued to serve the Lord, you remember? And the Lord blessed it. How, how excited was Daniel when he got to go home to the promised land? He wasn't because he never did. He died in Babylon. Best we know. So it's important that we remember the point of our righteousness. It is to glorify the Lord our God no matter what circumstance we are in. 
It is not something that we are to use to try to hold him hostage because someday it's going to come clean and clear who's what. And that day, you will either bow to him as father or you will bow to him as judge. And if you bow to him as judge, um, you will be cut off from him. And so... That's, this is great, hear me, this is gracious warning. He's saying, look, I, I know, I know you have questions, but come to me with them. We saw that in Habakkuk, right? Habakkuk was all turned up about what was going on. And even, I was like, look, dude, your solution sounds terrible. I just gotta be honest with you. I think the nations are gonna question you, but hey, you're God, I'll stand my watch. Tell me what to do. It wasn't pretty but it was righteous. We saw it in Hosea, didn't we? We've seen this again and again and again. The issue, the antithesis to faith is not doubt. It's pride, and sometimes our pride evidences itself in our unwillingness to bring our doubt to the Lord or to actually work through it with people who can actually help us. So these folks are willing to get together, hash, chop, do what they needed to do to see where the Lord was at work. And we need to be a persistent people in doing the same. And we need to remember that that is what we have in terms of our testimony. That's what the world needs to see. A persistence and a, and a perseverance people. We're so quick to quit on things. Listen to what John L. McKay says about this portion of the text. <clears throat> he says, the righteous are those who serve God and whose conduct is consequently in accordance with the demands of the covenant. It is not a matter of salvation by works, as if their good standing with God were achieved by their own efforts at keeping the demands of their covenant. On the contrary, their conduct is the evidence that they understand and appreciate all that God has done for them. Their obedience is an index of their indebtedness to him for salvation. And their love for him reveals itself in serving him with all of their heart and their soul. Jesus say anything like that? Just in case you're like, oh, man, that sounds like some Old Testament nonsense. Jesus said, if you love me, you'll commit adultery. If you love me, you'll lie. If you love me, you'll steal so that I can have something to do, right? So I can look better to the world. I don't need people who just stub their toe and cuss. I need some real over-the-top sinners. Make me look good. Is that what he said? No. He said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And they are two. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. That's worship. Second, love your neighbor as you love yourself. There it is. If you love Jesus, that's what you'll do. You won't be intentionally cruel to your nearest neighbor. You won't give up on each other. You won't withhold from each other. You won't cut each other off because what they're honest about is more than you think you can handle. No, what we'll do is evidence our great love for our God by how we care for one another. And again, I know we like to define that for ourselves. You don't get to define it. But you need to participate in it. So what most encourages you to continue to be faithful? What have you found that, that really encourages you? How are you encouraging others to remain faithful? Because a lot of times that's actually the how. You want to be uh, you, you want to see God at work, serve somebody. Yeah, I quoted Dylan. I didn't sing it like him, though. What role does having a missional mindset have in all this? See, part of the problem for so many of us while we're wrestling and doubting is we're not doing anything. We're not serving anybody. We've got nowhere where we're actually being honest. We're, we're spending so much of our time and our energy hiding that it's just wearing us out. We're not getting in the community of the faithful. So let us be an encouragement to one another's family, recognizing that you're not out because you mess up. 
You're out if you cut yourself off. Malachi 3, 13 through 18 teaches us a couple of things about our righteousness. First, our righteousness is not for personal gain and benefit. It's just not. Now you may, if you're wicked, say, well, shouldn't I get something out of it? Yes, you do. A better understanding of the depths of God's love for you and the opportunity to join him in the kingdom work that he is unfolding in this world. And remember, I know some of you, uh, when you hear the word missional, it just, it, it just gets all over you because it feels like it's more stuff you got to do. It's more people you got to talk to. It's more, 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 more. No, 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 no. Remember, I qualify every time. You don't need to add at this point anything to your life. What you need to do is recognize the spheres of influence that you have and leverage it for that missional purpose. The first step is Pray. There is no second step if you don't do the first step. So start there. And when you've prayed for a while, come talk to me and let's talk about what it's going to look like. If you need step two. Step two is just getting, getting involved in whatever it is the Lord kind of lays on your heart. Basically, it's listening, being a friend, opening your home, hospitality, uh, uh, asking questions, following up, caring for people. It's, it's, it really is that. Our righteousness is for declaring the glory of God for the life of the world. It's not about us. It's about him. Um, and, and when we do that, we, we are walking in, in the newness of life, in the power of the spirit, in the most that we could possibly have. Now, we're gonna transition in just a moment to a, a baptism. And the beautiful thing about baptizing an infant on a day like this is to remind us, and I know many of you aren't keen on the whole infant baptism idea, and that's okay. Uh, when we get to the other side, God will straighten it out pretty quick. I'm pretty certain I'm gonna get there and he's gonna be like, dude, I never, I don't know what you were talking about that day you said X, Y, or Z, but Jesus loves you, come on, God, go on in. Uh, so I, we're all wrong about something, I am, I am dead set positive. <laughs> I'm probably wrong about that too. Uh, but uh, uh, I just don't know what I'm wrong about. But, but, but infant baptism, one of the great pictures that it gives to us uh, is that it, it reminds us of our helplessness, our helpless state when God first declared his love over us. And it helps us to remember that God started working long before you were a thing. You do understand that, right? Like, like all of the, the, the avenues that lead to the moment that you became a believer, he set up in his sovereignty. And it, I mean, it could have gone like a different way in 1649 with one of your great-grandparents or great-great-great-great-great-grandparents and the story's different. But it didn't. It went the way it did because he orchestrates all things for good. Even though that's mysterious to us and doesn't answer every question. So an infant baptism on a day like today helps us to remember what the real profit of our righteousness is. That it was imputed to us, given to us by Christ alone. Now, is the water that we're going to see sprinkled on Jane Hamilton's head, is it going to save her? No, can't. It certainly can't because the vessel that's going to sprinkle it on her isn't perfect. And the vessel that's going to sprinkle it on her fails so much that I would hate for it to be dependent upon me in that water. But it's not. But what it does is it means that she is being set apart, right? We recognize that God is so gracious to give us children and to, to give us responsibility. When you're given a child, that, your mission, you just got a mission field and it's right there in your house. You ain't got to go next door, even though you may want to, right? <laughs> I'll, I'll leave the country for a while. But it also recognizes that, that children are a gift from the Lord and an answer to the Abrahamic covenant and that it is a continuance that the story starts in Genesis 1.1. Not, not in Acts chapter 1, not in Matthew chapter 1, which is interesting to me because Matthew chapter 1 actually starts way back. Anyway, I won't get into that. But it actually, it, it's a continuity issue. And it reminds us that children matter to us and they are, we have a responsibility to love them and care for them. 
And that they, we should welcome them into this community to help generationally for them to be part of the remnant. For them to always have a group of people they can come to to wrestle with their doubts and know that they are loved. Amen? And so what we're committing to is that we would all participate as family in helping Jane and Cliff and Melissa in that process. So what a gift it is that we who question the profit of our righteousness get to witness actually some of the profit of our righteousness. That we get to remember that you as baptized ones, you who have profited in your salvation can actually grow and mature in that. Right? What a gift. So don't get tangled up in what you agree or disagree with, but instead celebrate what you are. So what baptisms are intended to do is make the word visible and remind us. Not get us all tangled up. I do want to say a quick word about the letters that we send out and how you ought to read them. Two things. Remember, babies can't read. So it ain't written to them. It's written to you, the baptized ones. So you, it, the language of it has to, has to be couched in salvation terms. Because you are admittedly saved. Most of you, I think. Those of you who get it and you're not redeemed, you need to read it as one who's outside the family and long for what's being talked about in those letters. You shouldn't read it. The letter itself is not ever intended to suggest that children are saved. These things that are mentioned in those letters are to you, to encourage you, the baptized ones. Make sure you read it that way. Context is important. And then secondly, uh, that you participate in making sure that child knows all of their days, uh, who and what they are in, in terms of being in the covenant community, but they've got to act on it in faith, right? Just because you're in the Old Testament, just because you were circumcised didn't make you of Abraham. Paul makes that really clear. Just because you are baptized doesn't guarantee anything. Even your profession doesn't guarantee anything. There must be fruit, and it is the Lord who decides ultimately, but he's gracious and he's good, right? And we get many opportunities to display and, and say to the world, I am a son of the God most high in Christ alone. Baptism's not the only one. So that's important to remember, I think.